wanted to start off this episode by just saying you know, I'm really thankful that Bob Crawley and Tim Tweetmeyer were able to take the time to share what they've been doing. They haven't been super public about it. They just put up a website and I'm thankful to be one of the first people that they've really opened up and shared this with. So from that, I'm also highly aware that some of the topics we talk about are super deep. Probably some of the most absolute desperation a human can have, um, and you'll hear more about that. But I'm also very respectful of who's listening to this episode. You know, you're, there's a good likelihood that some of the survivors, their direct descendants are listening right now. So I appreciate it. I appreciate what Bob and Tim have put together here. And I'm also excited that they're sharing the, the history. They're helping the historians through some very unique endurance type backgrounds, giving whole new insights into this. And I think truly this is almost a newsworthy type episode where they've invented something for the trails. This is different. When you're going out and doing something and you're actually adding to history, it's not like an FKT or a race or any of those. I mean, I asked them during this episode and you'll hear they they don't actually have a name for it while we're talking. Bob said they uh, they went for a run and chatted about that question because they hadn't really thought about it and came up with history trail trekking, which I, I hope to see a lot more of, and I'm inspired with what they're doing, so I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Tim Tweetmeyer, ultra runner out of Auburn, California, run a few western states in the days, and uh, one of the team members that's out uh, headed out for the Forlorn Hope uh, trek here in December. Bob? And this is Bob Crowley, also in Northern California, old man ultra runner and uh, co-expedition teammate with Tim on the Forlorn Hope expedition. Glad to be here. If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. A great cause. Oh, thank you. I respect that, man. So you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. Jam Jam, Jamil Curry here from Era Viper Running, and welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey, everyone. It's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? Decided if I could, you know, finish a 50 miler, I could probably run across the country. Right now I'd say that my beers per day is still higher than my miles <laughs> per day that I'm running. 100 miles is not that far. Hey, this is Carl Meltzer, the Speed Goat, and I want to welcome everybody to the Training for Ultra podcast. Welcome to episode 152 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra, and we have a good one here. Bob Crawley, Tim Tweetmeyer, doing something 
basically brand new for the trails. So I'm really excited for what they're doing. We're sort of the first to hear about this. So I'm very thankful for that. And both of these guys, I, I saved this word, but they're kind of legendary ultra runners. So the fact that they're teaming up, they're helping like grow some of the aspects of the history of this is it's just amazing and i'm excited to share the episode with you i wanted to thank exoskin because they have this big sale going on if you use the promo code t4u20 so t the number four u the number 20 any order that's over 95 dollars after the discount code will receive a free pair of toe socks and customers should add a comment how long their foot is so that's a pretty sweet deal. Check that out. I think initially they were going to use, they're going to give away some skull caps, but they ran out of them. So this is a popular sale for 25% off your order. Just use that promo code. The offer is good until the middle of December. Big thank you to Hammer Nutrition. They saw the virtual treasure hunt and they wanted to get in on it. So for one of the hunts, they offered to give away gold. And maybe you'll have to check out their website to know what products they offer. It's gold standard. So they're actually going to give some free, fairly expensive product away. Excited to include them in a future treasure hunt. If you're wondering what the heck is this virtual treasure hunt, check out patreon.com slash training for ultra. And if you're going to place an order on Hammer Nutrition, just use the promo code 252888. You'll save 15% off your first order. It might be a referral code, but check them out. Big thank you to both of them. If you haven't tried out a Kogala light, I highly recommend it. It's game changing when you run at night. It changes a lot of how your brain is processing things just because it's so lit up as opposed to swinging your head around with that little dot. So anytime I run overnight, or in the dark. This is just a really, really great system. Highly recommend them. Check out the show notes for all the discount codes that I have available for you. Wanted to give a quick shout out to you Patreon supporters. Brian Sands, giant supporter, really appreciate it. David, York Beach Runner, Landon, Pat, Jared, Ray, Todd, Matthew, Scott. You guys have all been huge supporters and that shout out tier. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys for joining me on the podcast. Hey, it's an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Where where do we want to start? I mean, you guys between both do both of you have two hundred ultra finishes? Or I'm I'm trying to Give some background and context to uh, your backgrounds as as endurance athletes. Uh, I've got I've yeah. Got, well, I'm on my side. Yeah, go ahead, Bob. No, I was going to say if I borrow oh. Tim's Tim's results, yeah, I have over two hundred. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah. Between the two of us, Bob and I have five Western States wins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny because both of us are kind of, you know, both Bob and I have been around for a while. I mean, I, I ran my first ultra back in the late 70s, so, you know, 40-plus years in ultra running, 
primarily on the trail. That's what I enjoy the most, but I've done a little bit of road running. And Bob, you know, heck, he's been running all over the place, you know, been a leader of some uh, uh, some uh, running clubs and trail running races back east. So we've been around, seen a lot of stuff. Maybe that's why we're working on this new project, because we, uh, we were looking for the next little uh, project to sink our teeth into. Yeah, yeah, I think we've got 75 years of ultra running between the two of us, and and definitely we'll, we'll dig into the Forlorn Hope expedition. But but both of us are thankfully still able to run. We're we're close to exactly the same age and in our 60s, and we still love running. We still love trail running. We still love the community. But you know we're always looking for the next thing, and and I think um, we've tapped into a lot of really different kinds of exciting things over those years, but. But this is a, a an entirely kind of other level for us, which which we're looking forward to talking about. So I'm thinking, statistically speaking, you guys might have met at a race or like volunteering at a race or something to that effect. How did how did you guys meet? Who? How did we meet? <laughs> That's a tough yeah. one. Yeah, I, I don't even remember. Bob was at the hunt. Yeah, no. I mean, we we met like no. back in the eighties, maybe. Um, back in the day, it was you know Gene Tebow and and um, okay. Dan Dan folks. That gang. It was it was you know. Oh yeah. We, we were out. I was living in Northern California. Tim had moved to the area, and you know Tim ran um, when he was in his um, you know the heavy heavy Western States years. Um, We'd see him occasionally. He was kind of like a cougar. You know, he'd see him and then he'd disappear. Um, and so there were a number of Tim Tweedmeyer sightings, but he was pretty much on his own rhythm. I was training. I was new to the sport, so I was training with a bunch of people that knew Tim. And um, usually I would be going up a hill and Tim would be passing me, and he'd say something nice, and I mean that genuinely, um, <laughs> of encouragement to a rookie. Um but yeah, we, we met way back then, and then I moved away to Boston for 15 years, and, and when we came back, that's when Tim really uh, Tim and I really connected uh, on a bunch of different levels, including um, this 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 project, which is really connected on our interest in reading and history and sports and just just you name it. We we kind of um, shared a lot of a lot of passion. Kind so, of crossing the streams on that one. Yeah, I mean it's funny because Bob, being an ultra runner and a and a trail guy and a race director, and you know I'm on the board. I've been on the board of the Western States for a while and ultra runs, and then e- even uh, fast packing. You know, even though we both done it and we haven't really gone on a big trip together, he's a pretty accomplished backcountry hiker, off trail boonie crasher. Same with me. I've done uh, the Muir Trail and you know under six days and done a bunch of cross country stuff out in Kings Canyon and Sequoia. So we had a lot of interests that were in common uh, and and we enjoy uh reading and getting into some of the history stuff and then this uh, uh you know this forward home project just seemed to create a little bit of a spark and you know the the more we've worked on it the more interesting it's became we thought you know we kind of exhausted uh you know what the stuff and just in the last week it's taken a, a whole nother level so it, it's been fun to to kind of ham and egg it back and forth and then uh, you know try to bring this story that we're working on uh to the the forefront so people don't appreciate it like we do let's let's just dive into it i mean and again i think it's amazing like you got the endurance athlete backgrounds some technology type backgrounds and then like a passion for history and learning that aspect of it um there's just so much in common it's like you guys are brothers or something 
uh, <laughs> I mean, truly, it's it is amazing. Yeah. Um, what what is this from like a thirty thousand foot view? Like, what is this new project that has someone that? I mean, both you guys have finished unbelievable races, and yet you know it sounds like you're as excited as you know getting ready for Western States for this project. So what what is like the thirty thousand foot kind of overview, and then let's dive in. Go ahead, Bob. Uh, okay, so so it's called the Forlorn Hope Expedition, and the Forlorn Hope were fifteen people that um, were part of the Donner Party back in eighteen forty six that got stuck at uh, Donner Lake. They, a snowstorm came in just before they were going to get up and over the Sierras and head to Sacramento and they got stuck and um, it became a serious problem after about 30 days it became clear they weren't going to get out of there and they were running out of provisions and it was getting really cold and they weren't prepared for any of this so 15 brave people that came out of those 87 members of the Donner party said hey we're going to put snowshoes on and they made they handmade them a guy from Vermont Franklin Graves uh, cleverly uh, put together uh, the snowshoes and said, we're going to head out and we're going to go up and over the Sierras on foot and we're going to get to a place called Johnson's Ranch and get help. And Johnson's Ranch, they thought, was 40 miles away and about a six to eight day trek in the snow on snowshoes. Um, So off they went and there were uh, three fathers, three mothers, some sons. Um, some sisters and brothers. These were just normal people, uh, men and women, and some children, uh, 10, and, 10 and 12 years old, that went off to, 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 to save their loved ones. And um, uh, long story short, uh, they thought it was six to eight days. That's how, many, how much provisions they brought with them. They, they kind of knew the way. And their guide died early. Um, from exposure and, and hypothermia, <clears throat> and then so they got lost, and they went the wrong way, and what should have been a six- to eight-day trip turned out to be 33 days, and they got um, severely lost, and they went into one of the most treacherous places in, in, in frankly, the, the country called the North Fork of the American River, which is a 2,000-foot canyon straight down and straight up. It's vicious any time of the year but in the winter it's horrible and they had to go down into it once and then again so uh ultimately out of those 15 only seven survived five women and two men and because that was not a planned trail um 174 years ago they did it once they finished they never wanted to talk about it again and we'll get into why and that trail has been lost for 174 years. No one knew where they went. Um, Tim and I have spent seven years researching the trail, um, a lot of academic research initially, and then an enormous amount, hours and hours and hours of field research. And um, this year is the culmination of that work. And we will go out on the 16th of December, the 174th anniversary of the Forlorn Hope Party, and we will repri- reprise. We will do the hundred uh, um, about a hundred miles that is between Donner Lake and a place called Johnson's Ranch, which is near Wheatland, California. And it'll be Tim and I, and then two women, uh, Jennifer Henman 
and Jennifer Walker Henman and Elka Ryman. And the four of us will go out and uh, as a tribute to the Forlorn Hope. And it'll be the first time anyone's discovered the trail and certainly the first time anyone's tried to, um, you know, take the same route that they took. I, I think it's almost ironic. I think it's uh, about 33 days away. So from now until when you start is how long they were out there, which is pretty unbelievable. Uh, where, where were they actually starting from in the United States? To get all the way out west, were they starting in the Denver area? Were they in the Midwest, or all the way on the East Coast? Like, where does this? Because it seems like they were they're working their way west. Where were were they actually like their starting point? And then it sounds like they came up on this. It, it must have been a massive blizzard or something. Tim, yeah, it's it's kind of funny that. Uh, the groups, you know, the way they did that is pretty much everybody congregated at either St. Joseph's, Missouri, or Independence, because it was pretty impossible to try to make the trip across uh, the United States by yourself. So what, what people would do is they'd go there, either Independence or St. Joseph's, and then they'd collect up, gra- grab all their provisions and whatever they needed, and they set off in giant groups. And they'd, you know, have 100 head of cattle and, you know, 10 families and all this stuff that they were going to go. Because, you know, once you left there... Other than maybe a couple of military forts, you know, there was nothing until you got to Sacramento. Uh, Sutter's Fort was the next kind of point of civilization on that particular trail that they took. So they had made the, it's close to, I think they said 2,000 miles from Missouri to Johnson's Ranch. And these guys made it 1,900 of it and, and ended up, it was kind of a little bit of a, uh, you know, conflagration of badness because they left a little later than they should have, and they got duped into taking Husting, uh, Hastings Cutoff, which is, uh, you know, had them boonie crashing with their wagons through Utah, and then got uh, nobody had really made it to cross the 40 mile desert in Utah by themselves, and they had to do that. So they they kind of ended up at Donner Lake later than they should have been, and more exhausted than they should have been, and then they got snowed in. And so, but it, it, it's just one of those things where they made it, you know, 1,900 miles and they're a hun- less than 100 miles to pretty much the promised land. And then the whole story kind of goes bad for most of the folks. But that was kind of Bob and I were really um, kind of uh, taken by these 15, or started with 17, two turned around, these 15 people. Because the Donner story has always been kind of one of those about, you know, people back at the lake and cannibalism and all this badness and, and i i'd read some books on it but i'd never been aware of these 15 uh trekkers that that made the winter crossing of the sierras to johnson's ranch and then in the process ended up getting lost and were all over the place and still made it to get help and had they not made it probably all those families would have perished back at the lake that's interesting and so at, at what point did one of you reach out to the other with this idea, I mean, when did the light bulb go off that you could take something that's nearly 200 years old and then, you know, get to almost experience part of it in the present and then share that experience with everyone? You know, I think- Bob can give his side. Let me, let me give you a quick one here. I know that, um, you know, him and I are both kind of fans of narrative nonfiction reading. Um, you know, folks like uh, Laura Hillenbrand and, uh, you know, Seabiscuit, Unbroken, and then you look at a lot of the Hampton Sides books, uh, 
you know, they can go slowly on some of these uh, on desperate ground. And we, I had read Boys in the Boat, which was the book by Daniel James Brown on the rowing crew that won the medal in the Olympics back in the 1930s. And it's another one of those books you look at, like, yeah, this doesn't look so hot. I don't know anything about rowing. It's going to be really that good. It was really good. Uh, he's just a really good writer. And if you like narrative nonfiction, then you got to like his writing. And then, I, well, you know, as, as you read one of those books, you go, well, what else has this guy done? You know, is it anything else? Because he was kind of a, I don't want to say a, a, a nobody, but he hadn't had a bestseller. But, the, you know, Boys in the Boat was huge. That was, you know, six, seven years ago. And back, and he had written this book called uh, The Indifferent Stars Above, and it was the Donner Party story uh, from the beginning, from uh, from the view of uh, Sarah Graves, who was a 20-year-old, recently married uh, woman that made the trip across with her whole family. And, uh, uh, Daniel James Brown wrote from kind of from her experience. And so he did probably the best, um, narrative of the forlorn hope group out of all the Donner books. There's some great Donner books that concentrate on more what's going on at the lake and the Donners over at Alder Creek. But as far as the forlorn hope, um, Daniel James Brown one is kind of what got me hooked. And then I was trying to kind of get in, in the mind of Franklin Graves, this, you know, 58 year old guy, who decides it's time to hike out, guys. I'm making snowshoes and we're going. And he was 58 and everyone else on the trip. I don't think there was another person over 35. So it's just kind of one of those stories that catches you and you just can't let it go. I mean, Bob, Bob might have had a different experience. Yeah, no, and, and I think I had been um, reading similar books. And then Tim and I actually started trading books. We just, we just you know, we, we see each other every week and he give me some books and I give him some books. And, and one of the books we traded was in different stars above and we both came back after reading that one and went this is right in our backyard how cool would it be to try to figure out where they went and then go do it as a fun kind of fast pack trip and and seven years ago that's really where this started it was really just to to go plot the course and then and then the two of us just could do it for fun just for you know uh chucks and giggles and um it's evolved from that to the point where we are um, we are in awe of having studied the people that that dared to go on this venture um, at what they went through and we'll talk more about what they endured but you know um, Tim, Tim in his own words has called this one of the if not the greatest endurance feat in the world and coming from a guy like Tim Tweetmeyer that says something he's seen a few of those things um, th- this this story and these people that survived, it is absolutely jaw dropping what they went through. And as you know, almost career ultra athletes and having voluntarily put ourselves in lots of compromised positions, it's child's play compared to what these people endured over those thirty three days. And we're not just talking the terrain; we're talking the weather and the lack of food and hallucinations and hypothermia and everything else that could possibly go wrong. They had no compass. They had no map. They had no um, dead reckoning because it was snowing, so they had no sun to to sight by. They were literally wandering in some of the most wild wilderness that we have in America alone, unsure as to where they were going and how to get there. And the only thing that kept them alive was the, the instinct for survival. And Interestingly, all the people that survived had family back at the lake. Everyone else that perished did not. That's fascinating. Um, Tim, how, how much of 
similarities on a path that parallels Western states, which has been a huge part of, of your life every year for, for 25 finishes under 24 hours and five wins. How, how much of that was steering you in the direction of trying to do this? Did that, was that playing at all a factor or was it just the proximity that it's fairly close to, to both of uh, where you guys live? Uh, no, I kind of moved on from the Western State story a little bit. I mean, not much. I mean, I did my last Western States in 2006, and I've been involved with the race, uh, you know, uh, on the board and working the race, uh, at least since then. I've been on the board for about 25 years as well now. But uh, the, the, inter- the thing that caught me on this was, one, is we run through a lot of the same terrain, right? You, you're going from Squaw Valley to Auburn isn't that much different than Donner Lake to Wheatland. Um uh, so, so we've seen some of the strain, but not the way that they had seen it. When we go into the Western states, uh, you know, we're well trained. We know what we're doing. These folks, they had never been there, weren't, uh, you know, athletes. They were just, you know, people that were farmers and, and other folks from the Midwest that just wanted to get to California because they heard it was pretty awesome. These guys were farmers that were hoping to get over there and get their own farms. But the other part that came in for me is is I do have a cabin up in the woods or up in the up in the Sierra, right, not too far off Donner Pass, in a town called Soda Springs, and uh, it's an area also known as Serene Lakes. And as as we started to research this route, literally the route almost goes within less than a quarter mile of my cabin, and so okay. that now it really got interesting because I, I spend some of the summers up there, and the best thing to do in the summer in the Sierras is put your day pack on and boonie crash and wander around and find things and. Now we've got this trail, and it's pretty much been documented or tagged, a lot of it, the normal route, all the way from Donner Lake to Wheatland. So there's a pretty well-established um, trail, but there are markers out there about every 5 or 10 miles that, that you know you can go through, and uh, some of them now are on private land, and some of it's had to be moved because you know there are big obstacles now. But now, between being a, a mountain athlete and now I've got this trail that I'm trying to figure out, and this historical story that we've read that's really compelling with the people, it was just kind of like the, the big gambit of, of interest. And uh, so the, the, the more we dug into the story, the more it got more interesting. And then we dig and, you know, we went from just finding the trail to appreciating the personalities and the backgrounds of these folks. And uh, just in the last, uh, you know, we thought we heard everything. And then just in the last couple of weeks, we've run into some real uh, people that, have come out of the woodwork from uh, you know the previous from the story the first guy to write about the Donner Party was McGlash and and uh, we we heard from some of his descendants and then uh, Bob just today heard from another woman that was uh, a descendant of the guys that came in and what was known as the first relief party which was the relief party that came from the Forlorn Hope Group getting to Johnson Ranch and they immediately assembled a relief party to go back to Donner Lake and uh, help these folks out so. It just this story keeps growing legs from uh, you know Brown's book we've read uh, Bob's got uh, the 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 uh, comprehensive bibliography of everything ever written on the Donner Party is out so <laughs> he'll read some stuff hand me a book every Tuesday night and then I'll give it back to him and uh, hey did you read this did you get this and then we'll find some other reference and start digging around the web and find some more stuff so uh, it's been fun to do that and then also uh, you know the people that have written about it be able to interact with them so. Yeah, it's it's been a, a kind of a strange trip, but uh, really enlightening. Well, one of the things, Rob, that's really been fun for Tim and I is in the world of academia, 
in historical research, which is, you know, um, a completely different set of skills and, and it's a completely different community from what we all know. Um, we've, we are rank amateurs. We, we have had to learn from scratch um, how to do proper research. Um, that's, um, you got to, and, and if you're building a thesis, which is where this trail is, you got to defend it. You got to have rationale. You got to have all your bibliography. You've got to um, have the facts lined up. You got to eliminate all the bad facts because there was there was bad news back there in the 1850s, just like there is now, and uh, fake news and all that. So, so you have to sort through all that and get to the real facts, back it up, and then go out in the field and check out whether it's real or not. And um, learning how to do that and do it well, just like um, we've learned how to do that with ultra running, has been a real joy for us because it's, a comp- it's like learning a new language. And it has introduced us to this whole world of historians and people that are as passionate about American history and pioneer history as as we are about uh, trail running and ultra running. And so we've gotten this whole new energy from these people that are um, amazing. I mean, world-class historians, archaeologists. We get, we got to go out with a, a – Tim will t- tell you the story about the uh, forensic dog a couple of weeks ago that's world-famous that um, was out helping us see if we had what's called the camp of death in the right place. And the dog was looking for 175-year-old bones, human remains, that it can scent. It's trained from its uh, birth on how to detect these uh, enzymes that come out of decaying human bones. And by the way, much to Tim's and my absolute jaw-dropping surprise, the dog found, uh, or at least what they called alerted, on some bones very near where we thought they might be. So tell me just a little bit more about the details of when, Bob, you and, and Tim went out and basically had to confirm this this trail. And how did you know if you were anywhere close? I mean, it sounds like you had one you know, spot on example there. How do you know generally and how do you confirm that? Were were there kind of firsthand accounts that you were reading through and then you had to try to make sense of that? I mean, tell me more about how you, you basically marked the trail. Well, you know, that was that that's been some kind of been some of the fun part of it is that there are there are, you know, what, what Bob, you know, I've learned a lot from Bob because he wrote a story, uh, read, wrote information on his family tree, and he learned how to write books and understood somehow how to how to do this. But <clears throat> we had several references to go from. There's like the original sources, which is interviews of the people that were there, but uh, they were fairly reluctant to tell the story. You can imagine if uh, yeah, you know, these people died, and then you ended up having to, you know, you had some of those guys got eaten that you would probably not want to tell that story to too many people. Um, and relive that. And so you have those original sources. Then you have people uh, like McClashen who wrote the first book, uh, you know, comprehensive uh, uh, recollection of, of the um, Donner story by interviewing the survivors. And that was 30 years after they made it um, across the across the Sierras. And then you have someone like George Stewart, who was a real academic uh, researcher on the uh, Donner Party and wrote a book in 1930 and then re- uh, updated it in 1960. So he's been on that story for a long time. But as you each read each one of these books and document what they write, 
you kind of got to take each one and line them up with the other. So, so actually Bob, Bob put together, we started kind of putting this spreadsheet together, which was, well, there's so many sources. How do we put them all together? So we, we started this spreadsheet of every day, what these writers were telling about. And, and in each way, some of them were right and some of them weren't as accurate. And so by doing that, we're able to kind of sift through and find out, okay, really where they were on this day, who's got the right information and the dates, you know, and whatnot. And by doing that, we were able to kind of, uh, kind of decide, okay, what elevation were they at? Kind of how many miles had they gone? Because even the mileage people reporting in these stories were a little goofy. And so we had to kind of just kind of line up and say, decide who you're going to believe and who you're going to say, well, maybe they were a little off. And by doing that, I mean, Bob's, if you go out to the website, forlornhope.org, you'll see that uh, Bob's created this, um, what's that application, Bob? Yeah, it's called TikTok. It's a timeline. It's an interactive timeline. Yeah, so it's an interactive timeline for every day that these guys were on the Forlorn Hope Trek. But in there, he's got, you know, the weather, the moon, uh, you know, um, and, and then every source kind of lined up. So you're like, well, this is what Stewart said, and this is what Brown said, and this is what Rosen said. All these people that we've read all of their information about, you know, well, who, who, was, on the, who was on the right track here? And, and it's funny because each one of them, even, even uh, uh, some of them, you're like, well, that, we know that couldn't have been happening. And some of the books, you just read some of the stuff. And like, for example, one guy goes, well, and then they followed the river trail for six miles. Well, if you've ever been in the North Fork of the American River, there are no river trails that go six miles anywhere. You might be able to go a mile or two, and then you get cliffed out, and then you're going for a swim, or you can't get through, and you got to go way up and out of your way. So the idea that somebody actually went in there and looked at this, we just kind of discounted that person's account of that and went on to the next one. But uh, at the end of the day, after all that uh, researching and, and, and aligning, uh, Bob put together what was pretty much a, a comprehensive map of where they went, where they camped, and then kind of where they were each day from 33 days from when they started at Donner Lake until they arrived at Johnson's uh, Ranch later. And, you know, uh, it, it's as good as a, a trail that we could come up with. I, after we do it, we might know more. We might have to adjust it. But given all the resources we've looked at and all of the books we've read and all of the People and expert historians we've talked to, they're looking at our stuff and going, wow, you guys really, that, the alignment of all the stories into one clear pane of, of glass was really um, important. And uh, that's how we, that's how we, you know, put what we thought was the best uh, route on the page. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I mean, it sounds like a, almost a breakthrough then, in, in how you're, you're going about this. I mean, well, I think that yeah, yeah there were some places we went that the people speculated they might have gone, and we went there. We're like, there's no way they went here. So, like, uh, you know, if you look at the North Fork of the North Fork of the American River, there's a place called Rawhide. So one weekend, Bob and I, my my trusty dog, we went in there and we were boony crashing some pretty steep side hills, and and you know went to this what is uh, still a humongous mine. That's what's interesting about the North Fork. You'd be surprised. You go in there now today, and you'd think the miners all just left last week and just abandoned all their equipment because almost everywhere you go in the North Fork, sooner or later, you run into a mine. You'll run into uh, mining equipment that's been there for 100 years. You'll run into uh, shafts and ore carts and tracks and railways and wooden ladders and all this stuff that was used from you know 1849 till they decided to leave. And, and it's all just like it was. So we went into Rawhide because one of the books said, oh, yeah, we really think the, the camp of death is in Rawhide. We went in like, no way. This is so extreme, so steep, so so hard to follow that they would have gotten cliffed out or wrecked uh, before they made it to the bottom. So so part of it was taking the best guess, and then sometimes it was just eliminating stuff that just didn't, didn't make any sense. Once you got out there, a lot of the people have done the um, – 
kind of the analysis by looking at, you know, sat maps and, and topo maps. And until you get out there and see it firsthand, you really can't appreciate it. So, Rob, one of the th- one of the things that we we learned from our our colleagues, our new colleagues in the in the research world and 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 trail finding, and there are a lot of standards on how to do that, is that in in our case, we didn't have a lot of forensic evidence. In other words, if you're trying to find an old um, uh, Conestoga trail, right, you can see the rocks have been worn by the steel. Um, wheels, or you'll see rust on the rocks, or you'll see indentations in, in, in the dirt itself. We have none of that. This is one trail that was used one time unintentionally and never used again. So there, there's no forensics. So we have to take a different technique, which is to essentially gather all the data we can, and then we have to put ourselves to the best of our ability in the mindset of the people that were actually on the forlorn hope. So we have to take into consideration what the weather was like, what the terrain was like, what, you know, the snowshoeing, um, um, and, and how many days they'd been starved over the 33 days, the forlorn hope were starved four different times for up to four to six days each. Um, so, so imagine what it would be like to be starved that often and to be in hypothermia and to be in a blizzard and to be not, not know where you are and have people starting to die around you that are relatives, and then having to turn around and cannibalize them to stay alive yourself. Imagine your emotional and mental state. So we had to take all of that into consideration as they started to make decisions, either instinctively or deliberately, as to where they went. And we had to do that over and over again in the field. And honestly, a lot of the times, Tim and I would say, look for the easiest route, because if you're that destroyed, and we've all been there, you you included, you go the easiest route. You go the route that's a path of least resistance, and that's where we were able to eliminate a lot of theses, a lot of um, false, what we call false thesis about where they went, simply because it would have been absolutely uh, impossible for them to go in some of the places that some of the authors um, predicted they went. It was too 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 drastic or too severe or too many hills or too many water crossings. So we really have eliminated, spent most of our time eliminating things and then coming down to what is the most logical path. So it sounds like you used your background, not only with technology, but then also from endurance experience to kind of piece together what maybe a lot of historians just didn't have a background in and couldn't kind of have that mind frame to piece together the story that way? Is that your thoughts? I think we've been told by them that that's a significant um, change, uh, whether it's a, a new way to do it or it's, it's just a different perspective. But, but they, they, they have um, shared with us a tremendous amount of support and appreciation for both our physical abilities to get into places where most people that are trail finders just can't go. They just don't have the physical capability to do it or the desire. And then secondarily, our ability to sort of adopt the attitude of what it would be like to be that distressed. And then how do you function? And, and what would you do? What, what are your decision-making? What's your decision-making tree when you're that broken down? And I think the combination of that has come to our aid uh, time and time again, where um, we can eliminate a lot of other possible routes 
or spots. You know, you take a five mile segment and go, okay, we got to piece this out today. Um, we, we can usually find our way because the terrain hasn't changed, right? The rocks are the rocks, the trees are the trees, the mountains are the mountains. That, that's all the same as 174 years ago. The, you know, the trees are taller and all that, but we can see through all that. It's common sense. And, and that, that part of it has really, um, I think, made the field work that we're doing um, as important, if not more important, than the book work that we did. So, I'm yeah, I think that's been the differentiating point as well. As a lot of people wrote, but they didn't, they didn't get out of their car. And that, that I think, made a big difference. And, and that's why, you know, you look at somebody like George Stewart, and um, we've taken a little bit, maybe given him a little tick up and in, in the stuff, because he, he believed that it's very similar to where we're going. But he said, you know, one, if I wasn't sure, I went out and I looked at it. And I went, went out on foot, whereas a lot of the other people that have written on this, you know, just kind of looked at the maps and drove around in their car on I-80 and then kind of went, yeah, well, I bet you they went over that way. And it's just not practical. Yeah, after actually going and and like Bob and I've done, we we've done a fair amount of it in snowshoes, particularly the wrong turn where they made their their kind of drastic mistake of not going over the immigrant gap into the Bear Valley and kind of turned left and headed southwest into the North Fork Canyon. And uh, you can see why they'd make that mistake if they were tired and and it was snowing and they were cold. And they're going to take the easiest path possible. The easiest path is to head down into the into the river and follow it. It's real gentle. Or you could climb up over Emmerich Gap. It was going to take a, a huge amount of energy on their part to do that. And if they couldn't see where they're going because it was snowing out, it was a simple mistake. So I'll, I'll open it up to either of you guys, but I mean, it sounds like there's a big human element uh, to what you guys were researching. It seems like you really felt a lot of uh, the suffering that, that these people were going through. I mean, I want to start there, and then I kind of want to go down the trail. I want to hear the details of what took place, and then I want to, yeah, I just I want to hear more of the details if possible. But let's yeah, start I'll, with I'll, the human part of this too. I'll give you my my favorite quote of the book, and then Bob's got one that he's kind of um, kind of uh, resonated on. For me, uh, you know, like Billy Brown's book was written um, on the viewpoint of Sarah Graves and her younger sister Mary was uh, on the trip as well, 18 years old at the time. And they, they get to this point where, you know, Stanton, the guy who's leading them, he's the guy that only he's the only guy that knows the trail. Well, he's died, and he hasn't caught up. And they don't they figure well we're on our own now. The only other people that have ever seen the trail were the two Indian guides that probably didn't speak much English and had only been over the trail once and probably not when there was this much snow on it. And they're they're down kind of, they made their wrong turn and it's miserable and it's blizzarding. And, and now they're starting to have doubt and um, they're saying, you know, Hey, maybe we should turn around. Maybe this is a, you know, we should just cut our losses here, turn around and go back to Don or Lake. And, and the Indian guys are going, no, we're not turning back. Our, our home is back in the Sacramento Valley. And then Mary Graves, she just says, yeah, I'm going on with these guys because I can't stand to go back to the lake and listen to my brothers and sisters cry for food. And uh, it just kind of puts you in this mental state of, my goodness, these folks, you know, for as miserable as she must have been to be sitting in the snow, no shelter, you know, clothes that were just era clothes to keep them warm, probably soaked to the bone, and now they have no food, that she still wants to go on. And, uh, yeah, Bob, Bob's got one, you know, Bob, you kind of the, the 48 hours of, you know, going from good to bad. Yeah, so just to play on top of what Tim said, so... There was a point where they were on the path. They had their uh, leader, Charles Stanton. Um, they, they were hopeful. 
the forlorn hope is named appropriately. Um, and uh, along they went. Then they lost their leader. The snow storm, it was a, a hundred year blizzard, hit them. Now they can't see. Their leader is gone. Their food and rations have run out. There really is no leader to the group. And from that point of, of feeling that they're on the track and hopeful and they're going to make it and they're going to save their families, 48 hours later, um, there was conversations about who of the party was going to be killed and sacrificed in order to keep the rest of them alive. We call it the thin veil of civility. So they went from all that hope and, and sort of, quote, normal civil behavior. 48 hours later, they were talking about who's going to die on behalf of the group so we can eat you to keep the rest of us alive. Think about that. 48 hours going from one to the other. Yeah, and they, they still had it together, right? You know, because at the end of the day, they drew straws for, to see who was going to, you know, get killed by the rest so they could survive. And when it came down to the point where they said, okay, you know, it was this one guy, they went, okay, well, who's going who's gonna to kill him? So we, nobody would do it. They couldn't and do so it. They still have this kind of, uh, you know, conscience about them going, well, yeah, that sounded like a good idea, but nobody has the, we're not, we're not, that, we're not that deep into the hole yet. And so, and and that. So, it just so happened not too much longer after that someone did pass and but yeah it gives you an idea you know where they think they're going but they haven't quite gotten to the bottom of the pit yet i mean is yeah. there is there no wildlife around or anything to eat besides each other i mean or, or is the storm so bad that everything's frozen and they're just totally disoriented i I'm just trying to piece that together in my head. Yeah, very, very little wildlife, and particularly given the snow conditions, this they were hit multiple times with either a rain, sleet, or heavy snow, just just pummeling them. And Tim and I have been all over this area, and interestingly, where they um, lost their guide and ultimately had to to kind of bunker down for five nights. Um, it, it was later called the camp of death because four of the members died there. Um, Tim and I have been in there, uh, a number of times and we've commented on the fact that it is eerily quiet. There's not a crow. You don't see a squirrel or a chipmunk. We see, we've seen a little bit of, uh, uh, remnants or evidence of the, of a bear, but never seen one, but it's just this very strange place where there is very little wildlife. And so, they had a gun, they had the capability to hunt, um, but they never came across anything until very late. They did kill a deer eventually, but this was um, uh, when they were down to to nine people left. Um, so it was pretty late in the game. I, I run through those sections. I always get sketched out. I always think it's like a mountain lion or something. Some predators eating everything in this area. <laughs> At least that's how I see it. Um <laughs> It's it's funny because the two days, at least the two days we were out in that immediate area, the only thing we ran into were frustrated hunters. No people <laughs> other than a couple of guys yeah. in a pickup going, have you guys seen any deer? We're like, no, we haven't seen deer for like two days out here. And we've been all over the place on foot in some, some of the strangest places, way off the road, not, not on anything that looks like a trail, 
didn't see anything, so it kind of <laughs> speaks for itself. Yeah, it was pretty ironic. They were, um, we were trying to help them out. We said, guys, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> you're never going to find any deer in here. <laughs> you just come over to my house. You can shoot them in the yard. Yeah, but not in the right. middle of nowhere. There's nothing. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't want to go like mile by mile, but I'd like to go yeah. maybe 10 mile segments because you guys are becoming intimately familiar with this trail that you're about to take on mid-December, I mean, if it's not too detailed, I, I mean, I'm just trying to picture how this guide starts off. Like, is it like, is it December 16th? Are you guys starting on the same day that yes. they went out? Yeah, Tim, why don't you grab the first 10 miles? Uh, yes, and the answer is yes. We're starting on the wow. literally the 174th anniversary, and it, it happened to be a Wednesday back then. Wow. Yeah, we're planning to go at the exact same date they started. They had actually delayed a day or two because they had a big storm and they waited for the snow to, to kind of consolidate. And they, then when they had it the first, you know, clear day, they're like, okay, let's go, we're going. And their first day, they made it to the other end of the lake, which is probably, I don't know, three, three and a half miles. But yeah, I mean, you start out with a pretty tough pull. They tried to make and made it over the pass previously. Um, they, they'd gotten some people over the pass and over into what's known as Summit Valley, which is the little valley over the, over the crest, the Donner Summit. But uh, they weren't able to continue and had to retreat back to the lake. So this time they get all the way. The, the first thing they have to do is get over Donner Pass. So that's, you know, a 1,500-foot climb and a few miles. Um, and there have been plenty of wagon trains over that, but now that the so's there, it's, it's really tough to follow. There's no tracks or wagon ruts or anything. Uh, and you crest out into this big valley that they go through. And actually, actually, at the beginning of that valley is another famous spot in the story called uh, Starved Camp, which is uh, after they, they the relief parties get there, they start out and get blasted by another huge storm and get stuck in that valley for several days but, but then you get into this really nice uh, downhill uh that takes you kind of out to and you just follow the yuba river pretty much uh the headwaters of the yuba and it just takes you down towards what's really close to interstate 80 right now at kingville and then uh, you follow along there to um uh, where the yuba river turns north and it gets real rocky and that's when they everybody knew you turn left and you go around cisco butte and out uh towards this place called Six Mile Valley. So that's kind of the first section of it. Uh, pretty easy other than the pass. And uh, Six Mile Valley is kind of where things started to go really sideways because uh, they'd lost Stanton back uh, along uh, Cisco uh, Butte and along the lower Yuba, and now they're up in the valley kind of uh, just trying to get miles behind them. So. How, how many days in are they? Four. About a week. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it's the, four or five. That's about by the time they get to the other end of Six Mile Valley. They're in, you know, it's December twenty second, twenty third. Yeah, that's some slow slogging along. I mean, so they're basically they don't have any food as they start this whole. No, they have track. six days of provisions, six which days. was really ju just strips of uh, dried beef. I mean, very little, and they they were in fifteen to thirty feet of snow. Uh, with the snowshoes so it's a, it's a slog wow and in fact the, in fact on the sunny days one of the problems with their guide is he got snow blinded and he wasn't the only one so the sun was not their favor and then it melts the snow and makes it like cement and almost impossible to move in they wanted to move when it was crusty so early in the morning and but the moonlight didn't line up well for some of the days so they couldn't move that much at night but but Tim's got you all the way 30, 35 miles in. And then, you know, from Six Mile Valley, that's the faded place where they, they needed to go right. And it was up over a hill. 
and, and towards what they call Bear Valley, and that would have taken them to uh, the Promised Land, Johnson Ranch, and the Sacramento Valley. But the storm hit, and they had lost their guide, and they, they didn't know to go that way. And so they went the easy way. They went the way the land was sloping down to the southeast. And that took them, they, they didn't know it at the time, but that was the portal to taking them into the North Fork of the American River, which many people in the Forest Service have called it the most wild and dangerous place in, in all of the West of the United States. It is an awful place. It is a beautiful place, but it is incredibly wild. And so they went, and uh, and they ended up uh, drifting down, uh, going down a canyon, up a canyon, down a canyon, up a canyon. And in the middle of this, uh, they got snowbound for five days. They they, they had to sleep. They, they they lost their fire. They lost their they lost their axe. They lost their fire. They couldn't get a fire started. They had to sleep under blankets with all of their feet together in a circle and then covered themselves with blankets. And then they got snowed on for insulation. And for 36 hours, they laid in a circle underneath blankets with no fire, shivering and trying to stay alive. And in that time, four of their members perished. They ended up uh, having to cannibalize them. And, um, and then from there, they got to the North Fork of the American River and then were faced with a 1,500-foot um, climb, 2,000-foot climb straight up, literally hanging on from manzanita and tree to tree, climbing straight up 40, 40% grade up the side of this hill in, in the snow, in snowshoes. So that gets you to probably, what, about 60 miles, Tim? Yeah, you're on the, on the uh, south side of the North Fork at this point. You know, it took them an entire day. That was their New Year's Day was uh, getting out of the North Fork. It took them uh, you know, an entire day to do probably, what, two, two and a half miles. Then they end up on the Iowa Hill side of the river, and that that's actually a pretty nice downhill, gentle downhill into Iowa Hill, and that's where they had their, they were able to shoot their deer. But now they had to cross the River Canyon again to get back onto the other side of the river, the north side of the American River, and so they uh, had to descend back into the canyon, then climb the other side again. This one was a little bit more gentle because they're a little bit lower down than they were way back when they came off a place uh, called Sawtooth Ridge, and uh, end up in what today is a uh, modern-day Colfax, which is kind of somewhere probably where the Stevens Trail, it's a pretty famous old trail, it's been around for 170 years, uh, uh, comes up uh, to Colfax. And then uh, that's where they started, you know, kind of getting back onto the right track. Uh, the the actual immigrant route is just another three or four miles uh, north of Colfax and just trickles down, at, still in the Bear River Valley, way from way back when they were up in the higher Sierra. And that just pretty much channels you right down into Johnson Ranch. And for us, we'll be on uh, uh, modern roads in there for a lot of it because, uh, you know, that's all been developed until we get out towards um, the very end when we're out at an area called Camp Far West. And then we're kind of out in the boonies again. And then we finish up actually on the uh, – on the uh, we, we just were able to get permission. There's a piece of private land where, where this uh, Johnson Ranch was – and it sounds big because it's – saying ranch but it was an adobe house one house and this is where every immigrant for about five years came to before they went to sacramento it's very little known but it's probably the most historic spot in all of california and it w it went missing no one knew where it was no one knew where this adobe house was or where the exact site was and uh, a number of years ago uh, a father-son team um um, did an uh, archaeological dig and found it, and then it, it landed in private hands, 
no one had access to it. Long story short, we've been able to uh, work with the Historical Society, and they've given us permission to actually end our journey literally standing on the very place that the uh, Forlorn Hope were were rescued and ultimately rested. And uh, we were out there the other day, and uh, talk about just just all the hair on your your body standing up and goosebumps um just knowing that we were literally standing in the place where the seven survivors were finally brought in and and uh where where the relief parties came from absolutely um stunning so that that's a pretty fine ending to this uh, about a hundred mile journey for us so I'll ask you while being out there on the ground. Did you ever come across any items that had never been found before that might have belonged to a member of the the party? Not yet. Not yet. And I'll, I mean, I'll ask about what uh, what your guys' emotions were like when you brought the dog out to uh, you know the area that. Yeah, several party members uh, perished and were cannibalized. I mean, that that <laughs> had to be emotional, time, Bob, right? Bob, Bob was with him at the time. I was out researching uh, some more of the trail through a place called Burnett Canyon, and I had my dog with me, so I was kind of intentionally trying to stay away so I didn't res- disrupt this dog. But, uh, yeah, Bob mentioned this, this dog is, like, maybe one of the most famous cadaver dogs uh, in the world. It's been... Traveled, I think the owner said, 200,000 miles on planes and on the ground searching for bones. It's a, I think, a 13 and a half year old border collie. And, uh, yeah, we were like, oh, yeah, what's the chances, huh? This place that we kind of picked out on the map. And we had done a lot of analysis on it, uh, where we thought it was, and, you know, elevation and kind of where they might have been. And we had gone out there a couple of weeks earlier and kind of, and just speculated, wandered around in that canyon for a while looking for this spot. And then I, Bob's like, I was kind of down towards this one creek at the bottom of this canyon. And he's like, yeah, I think it's maybe a little higher. So we went up a little higher. And we're looking for kind of a semi-flat spot, but it's got to be on a drainage because when these uh, guys were at this place called the Camp of Death, their fire burned into a creek and fell their fire fell into a creek bed. So we knew, hey, it's got to be on a drainage. When we finally found this spot, we got, yeah, this is as good as any. This is, if we had to bet our houses on it, it'd be right here. So that's where they took the dog and Bob, you can uh, give the details because you had a little bit of a first-hand account. Yeah, you know, the the fellow that owns the dog and has been all over the world, he, they went to Fiji and, and helped find the Amelia Earhart uh, bones that then went missing mysteriously. But uh, very exciting to watch the dog work. Um, and uh, after about a half hour um, of, of really just the dog has a pattern that it follows, and when it finds any kind of scent, it lays down or it sits down. That's called an alert. And um, Callie, the dog, um, alerted three times in a very tight area, although it was down kind of below the manzanita. So none of us could see it. So when John and Callie were done, they came over and he said, look, I'll brief you. And he sat down on a log and he says, uh, so, you know, I got to tell you, the probability that Callie can find anything, especially in 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 a search like this, are like slim and none. But he said, I'm going to tell you, she had three alerts in a bundled area, and it's very close to where you had identified the site. And um, that that is uncommon. So what I'm going to do is rest the dog 
and then we're going to have her go back at it again and see if she has the same alerts. Well, long story short, she did. And John said, you know, this is preliminary, but what I want to do is bring more dogs in here. And if we get multiple hits from multiple dogs, and I can give you a 95% assurance that um, there are human remains here. And we'll tell you, this place where, where we've, um, we, we speculate Camp of Death is, there are no, nobody else's human remains in there. This is a place nobody goes. Um, so if, wow. if, we're, if, if, if we have the good fortune to get the dogs back in there, maybe it'll be in the spring now because it's starting to snow. Um, and, and if we have even better fortune, they have an alert. Um, I think we'd have a, a delayed reaction, uh, Tim and I, of um, uh, probably a little, a little bit of throwing up in our mouths. Uh, over, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, when, I, when Bob told me the story, like I've been gone for, I don't know, a couple hours probably. You guys were down there, Bob. And then I finally came back, and I'm, I'm standing way above and went back to where the car was because it was a good, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes from the car as the regular person hikes. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm just dying to know what happened because I, I heard the guy say when I was kind of up on this perch watching me, he goes, well, that's about all we're going to get out here today. And I'm like, okay, well, shoot, must not have been a total loss. And Bob comes back to the car and he's like, well, how you guys do? And Bob goes, yeah, she had three alerts. I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. I mean, of all the places we picked, I mean, this is, you know, We've been out there for at least two weekends, maybe more, and we've seen uh, two people. And uh, those guys were hunters in a truck. We didn't see anybody on foot. We didn't see anybody hiking, nobody running, um, just frustrated hunters. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of validation. I mean, who knows if that's it, but uh, it's kind of nice to see uh, that happen. So I want to hear from both of you guys, like, kind of takeaways, like what what you've learned through this process, like whether it be bring an extra coat when you go out uh, running, <laughs> I, I, whatever the takeaway is, I, I don't care how deep it is or topical, but um, I want to hear from both of you. I mean, Bob, what's like your big takeaway from doing all this research and, you know, now you're going to get to do the, the actual very much the same trail that this party had to suffer through. Well, I guess, I guess what I've learned is a couple of three things. One is you got to really be open-minded. So, so early on, um, like I know I jumped to some conclusions based upon reading some books and said to Tim, ah, you know, that route and this route, and that, that's nonsense. You know, it's this, it's, it's gotta be this. And I was fairly close minded and it wasn't for years later that I realized that was naive and um, you have to be open-minded uh, for, for anything. The second is you've got to do your homework. And, and, and there's just an endless supply of information, and you have to exhaust it to, to eliminate, essentially, non-feasible uh, uh, routes. And, and so that's the second bit is, is, is you know, be open-minded, do a lot of research, and then there is nothing that can replace feet on the ground, seeing it for yourself, putting yourself in their, their um, own frame of mind and situation. So th those three things became invaluable tools for us that we use over and over again. And, you know, Tim and I are already talking about, you know, what are we going to do next? So we, we were saying, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll go find the, 
the burial ground of Cochise or something. But, you know, um, <laughs> there are a lot of other really interesting American projects out there that we'd love to apply our skills to. So, Tim, Tim, what, what do you think? Yeah, the, the one, and we, this is kind of back to the, the story we keep telling is that, uh, is to try to, uh, kind of get into the minds of these people as they're going, because that's the thing that's impressed me the most on, on all the homework we've done and being out there is how much will and determination and, and courage these guys had to apply in order to save their families. I mean, this is really rugged ground. Even the, the historical guys we work with there, they're like, yeah, you guys probably don't want to go out there. I mean, you can drive your car out there and hike, but don't hike out there from the from the highway. You might not make it out. Um, it's, it's just, you know, we think we get into a bad spot in an ultra run for, you know, an hour or, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. These guys went 33 days with pretty much what they started with. And, you know, okay, they killed a deer and, you know, some other things along the way. But the uh, the will to continue in what is just the most grim circumstances uh, is really just hard to attach to with these guys and like so when you get to johnson's ranch you realize you realize where they've been and where they go to you just it's really humbling to think that these guys you know made it the way and, and you know the, the sad part of the story is some of them did save their families right of certainly the the, the graves and whatnot but there was, i think it was eddie who was probably the second most biggest hero of the group other than stanton who perished there he was the leader and had no reason to go back to the lake but he decided to do it and bring these guys stuff and come back because he was a bachelor and then he, he perished out there by the Uber River. But um, Eddie went all the way to the – he was the only guy that made it to Johnson Ranch on his own power. The rest had finally given up. The other six had stopped uh, many miles before and uh, said, we can't go on. And so Eddie goes on, and he makes it to Johnson Ranch, and they send back pe- people to go get the rest. And then when Eddie uh, gets on one of the release party, he goes back to the Donner Lake. He finds out that his total family is gone. They'd all died. So it's a, for him, it was kind of a, a real a bummer. But, uh, you know, the rest of the folks, uh, had they not done it, you know, their whole probably their whole families would have never made it. Yeah. And I, and I think, Rob, you know, if you think about your listeners, um, what, what Tim and I are doing, anybody can do. You, you just have to pick a topic and, and get passionate about it and then begin to, you know, put a plan together. But, um, you know, in these days of, of changing times, uh, thanks to all this disruption and you know, there's still a lot of trail running going on, obviously, but we're all finding new ways to be motivated. Um, certainly, we'd encourage people, you know, kind of look in your own backyard, whether it's find a new trail or that trail you keep going by every day and go, someday I'm going to take that trail. We'll take it. And and then that leads to something else. And son of a gun, if you, you know, maybe there's something historical, maybe there's something interesting in, in your own community, in your backyard that you can get together with two or three friends and do a little research and uh, have some fun with it and go out and do this. Because I got to tell you, I, you know, I'll speak for myself. I, I think Tim feels the same way. I'm having more fun now as a trail runner than I ever have in nearly 40 years. Uh, I, Tim and I are just absolutely, you know, we're not sleeping at night. We're having so much fun. I, I love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and it's funny because, uh, you know, like Bob said there, I've lived in Auburn now almost 31 years, and it wasn't until the last few years that I realized the immigrant trail crossed right across Highway 49 just north of town. And there is a, a route that you can kind of follow if you do your homework from, you know, heck, you could start way back in uh, the middle of Nevada and follow your way all the way like immigrants did all the way through, you know, Truckee, Donner Pass, uh, through, uh, you know, a place that was the, the kind of the, the um, cash point for all the food mule springs and down through the bear river valley it's possible and and, uh, there's so many things to explore you don't really have to go that far 
So, what do we call this? It's not an FKT. It's almost like you've invented this new territory uh, within trail running. What do we call this, guys? I've I've literally thought of of having the History Channel do races because they could do shows that do the background on the locations and then have those same cameramen cover a race. But what you guys are doing is like totally different and unique. I mean, what what do we call this? Because you're trail trailblazers once again. I mean. Yeah, I don't have enough intelligence to give it, and, and I, I'm terrible at marketing. Um, so I couldn't. Tell you, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what we call it. It's fun. It's a nice. lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, the, and the, the, like the, well, the fun thing. Just recently, it's it's been absolutely nuts. But uh, you know, we we've been able to correspond with you know Daniel James Brown, who wrote the book on a different stars, and Dan Rosen, who did a huge online analysis of where he thought the trail went. Um, and he, we've been able to have some Zoom calls with him and get his take. You know, one of the things that he told us that was really valuable, he said, listen, the pioneers never went on a side hill. If they're driving wagons somewhere, they went on flat ground or level ground, but not, you know, some side hill because they basically couldn't take the, the wagons that way. It was really dangerous. So, you know, you get all these little tidbits from each person you talk to. We worked with the Donner uh the Donner Summit Historical Society. Now we're working with the Wheatland Historical Society at the end and uh all these other people that we've reached out to uh, through email or, uh, you know, whatever correspondence we could to just trying to get their take on, uh, you know, how they got to where they were, the decisions they made and why they picked this and that, you know, reading the Stewart book and, uh, you know, his, his analysis, cause he was pretty familiar with the series and so was Dan Rosen. He'd spent quite a bit of time uh, on the ground up there. So, uh, it's uh, been fascinating with all the people we've met. And like I say, uh, you know, we put the website up a couple of days ago and just in a couple of days, we've uh, had another two or three people that have reached out to us when we're just like, well, I can't believe we're talking to descendants of McClashin or, um, you know, this other lady who was a descendant of uh, one of the first relief party guys. It's just, it's been fun to see the story come to life. The reason we're, we've really done this is we think the forlorn hope is kind of a, a lost story of the Donner overall Donner story, those guys didn't get the, the due credit they deserve for getting out of there and saving all their families. So hopefully uh, we can bring new light to that story that's a little more positive than some of the stuff that's been written already. Yeah. And w- one of the things we hope to do is flip the website after the expedition to more of an education site. And, and we've begun conversations with folks in um, with the historical societies, but also connecting with the schools. So there's a real opportunity here with um, kids high school kids and, and middle school kids, elementary school kids to get them outdoors and get them into, uh, you know, some structured, uh, field, uh, hikes, but, but, but combining history with physical education with the environment. So also working with the land trust and the forest services. So it's really a nice, uh, coalition of all, of all three. So there's a, an environmental aspect to it. There's a historical aspect. And of course the physical education and being outdoors and, and we're really looking forward after the expedition at, 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 at kind of probing into how do we bring that together in a way that's constructive for um, for all three of those parties. And then, you know, you can kind of use that template and, and just do it over and over again and on, on different historical topics, again, coordinating with local historical societies and then the schools. I love it. I mean, seriously, uh, I think you guys are creating a whole new category and i can't wait to follow along i 
just appreciate what both of you have done for the trail running community in general before even coming across this idea. And then this this type of concept, I think, is going to become very popular. And I, I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time and, and just sharing a lot of those real human stories about what took place back 174 years ago. And then where can we follow along when you guys do this in 33 days? Yes. Yeah, so, so the website's really easy to remember. It's forlornhope.org. And, um, and on there is, uh, uh, the live link. So we'll have a GPS in reach tracker. So people, if they want, and we have a, a Facebook, you know, site, so you can sign up for that event, but you can track us if you really want to watch grass grow for a few days. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but we'll also, go, you know, we have a, uh, in, we'll embed some photographers and, uh, and we will try to give, kind of nightly around the camp flyer updates. If we, if we have signal, you know, try to send something out to Facebook or, um, whatever we can do, you know, we're somewhat restricted by how remote it is, but, but, you know, we want to, if, if, if for instance, some of the schools follow and some of the teachers fire that up and, you know, we'd like to be uh, communicating with the kids and, and, um, you know, making it as human as possible. We have these things called tribute cards. They're kind of like playing cards, which are pictures of each of the members and then their little bios. And we we will carry those with us as a tribute, but also gives us an opportunity at the campfires reflecting about the day, really talk about, uh, you know, each of the members and what they had endured. Uh, Because it's, you know, it's really deliberate that we have two women with us, two phenomenal women, because, you know, five of the seven survivors were women. Um, even even back, uh, you know, the beginning of time, women were showing how incredibly great they are at endurance. So anyways, a long way of saying it's forlornhope.org. That's amazing. I will put a link in the show notes. So if you're listening now, check out the show notes. And then I'll also try to blast it out on social media. Thank you both for joining me and can't wait to follow along. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for letting us share. Yeah, really appreciate it, Rob. And that was episode 152 of the Training for Ultra podcast. Big thank you to Bob and Tim for taking so much of their time. These guys are huge within the trail running community, and it's awesome to see them branching out and helping really the history community. So I think when these two meld together on the trails, Dave really added something to historians understanding of historical events and I think history trail trekking has a big future and I'm excited to follow along so check out the show notes if you want to link to when Bob and Tim um, and their other expedition participants head out I believe it's mid-December so I'll have that in the show notes and then big thank you to show sponsors Hammer Nutrition, Exoskin and Kogala Remember, Exoskin has that new sale going on, so check that out. Big thank you to the Patreon supporters. Always have a great time with you guys. Most importantly, don't forget to enjoy your training. Have a great week. See ya.